what's a desperate decision that can actually start a symbolic chain reaction, you know, and then how do I pursue that? How do I do something like that? An artistic act or a created object that could be received by an audience as like this kind of provocation um, to initiate some type of chain reaction. Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe. But they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking, and if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it is Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com which is ledger.com. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months and then 1.5% back forever after. And also for every dollar you spend over 50,000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, today we have Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. 
take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Bitcoin mining gets attacked because of the en- the amount of energy it uses. People consider it too much and mm-hmm. at a time of uh, climate concern. It does, so we, we, we want to tackle the topic, but we come from a position of we do agree climate change is an issue, but we also think that... Uh, if you try and move to renewables too fast, you have a risk to the energy grid and therefore a risk to civilization. So we try and be, it's like everything, we try and be balanced and through the middle rather than just extreme one side or the other. So people must have used the example of the ice apocalypse in Texas last year. Yeah, so there's a really interesting thing with that. The I always get this name wrong, ERCOT. They got it right ERCOT, this time. Yeah, yeah there's, um, there's some work with Bitcoin miners where they're looking to use mining to stabilize the grid. Nice. Aren't they doing that in Austin though? Yeah, they yeah. are. So what they do, they there's uh, energy at certain times of the year that uh, you can't store all energy, so it goes to waste. So if you make that energy available to the Bitcoin miners, mm. they can they can be using that excess energy to mine Bitcoin. And then at a time where there's a, an increased demand for energy, you can scale down the miners. So it makes the grid more stable and more profitable. Cool. Um, so it's quite a cool thing. And in West Texas, the, uh, the those first contracts came through, allowing the I forget what they call that excess burnoff, you know, from the from oil extraction. Oh, the um, flaring. The flaring, but they've I know they've done some of those first deals with miners out in West Texas now too. Yeah, it's, that's quite a big deal as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a huge topic, and we will talk to Alex Epstein, who who believes climate change is happening, but it's not as extreme, mm-hmm. um, and is concerned about moving away from fossil fuels too quickly. too quickly, And then on the flip side, I, I interviewed Catherine Hayhoe a few years ago, who's a climate scientist who's very concerned about the speed of climate change. And mm. so we don't take an extreme position, but mm-hmm. we try and walk them in. And, and it's what we'll do today. Mm-hmm. The conversation with you, I'm, uh, as, a, as a fair, by the way, hi, Cody. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, good morning. This has been a while. I've wanted to have you on. And thank you, Jessica, for helping make this happen. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You tried me. very hard. I should have apologized for last week. I, I couldn't make it. It happens. Yeah. It's not a problem. I mean, we're here for the month. so. Uh, <laughs> um, but I've wanted to talk to you for a while. And uh, my experience of guns is limited. Mm. I'm from the UK. We have uh, no gun culture, really. We have yeah. some okay, some people who are hobbyist shooters. Yeah. Uh, there's very strict rules regarding how they keep guns. Uh, I would have said five years ago I was pretty much anti-gun, 100% behind UK policy, got involved in Bitcoin, understood there's a strong gun culture linked to Bitcoin, and then uh, do you know Jameson Lopp? Of course. Yeah, so uh, he was my third interview, and uh, I came out to the US and I said, will you take me to shoot guns? And he did. It was a, a interesting experience. It was like going bowling, but you're shooting guns. Yeah, cause, yeah. Uh, and I, I was amazed by the power, but I also, the whole experience of learning about gun safety was super interesting. So my, I've kind of, my position on guns has evolved to a, I don't want to change the laws in the UK. Mm. Uh, and if I came to America, not to say that I could, but I actually in, kind of enjoy the gun culture. And I've been out shooting here in Texas a few times. And I think the rules in both countries are kind of suitable 
for both countries. Does that make sense? I, that sounds very reasonable. Yeah. It, you, I wish Prince Harry would say something like that. But he wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> he gets a, on a podcast and bashes the First Amendment. So this sounds very uh, gracious of you and uh, accommodating uh, <laughs> to our gun culture. So thank you. Well, no, it's just the experience of spending time with people. It's, it gets to that point, like if you wanted to bring guns into the UK, mm. that would be very difficult to shift the entire culture of a country to have have guns as part of it. We don't have a constitution like you do have. We don't have that history. So that transition to guns would be yeah. very difficult. And as would in the US, a transition away from guns. And I just yeah. think different parts of the world have different cultures. I don't think it's worth getting into the autism of it, but strictly speaking, our gun culture is born of English gun culture and militia culture. You're the cradle for 800 years of what became the American gun culture. It's yeah. just, you know, we diverged pretty rapidly after the 18th century, I guess, once your constitution became imperial and our constitution kind of dwelled in this Whiggish Republican form for a couple hundred years, we went in these very different directions, which happy to talk about, probably not on your on your list today. But, well, you can talk about that. I mean, but, you know, for the, for the people at home and they're like, well, UK doesn't have a gun culture. The UK had an incredible gun culture. All Anglo-American gun culture comes from uh, the proud tradition of British anti-army ideology. Do you know what? I'm going to be honest and embarrassed enough to say I don't actually know anything about this. All I know is, all I know this is, is what he does best. you had a, <laughs> you had a well-armed militia, it. you had a well-armed militia, you kicked us out. Yeah. And ever since your tea has been yeah. shit. Fair enough. You know that, oh man, if we want to talk about the revolution, yeah. I mean, Let's talk about it. Our, our militias in the, in the colonial period were by royal charter. Um, and part of us discovering our revolutionary, you know, conversation was, okay, the, the UK with, with this new imperial constitution was treating us not like English citizens or subjects anymore. It was treating us like the Irish or worse, like the Indians, you know, in India. And we were like, well, aren't we Englishmen too? Why aren't we not just represented, but why are they not renewing our militia charters? And don't we as Englishmen, since the petition of right and the settlement of 1688 and the English Bill of Rights, don't we have the right to keep and bear arms? It's in there, right? Uh, and so this conversation uh, leads Patrick Henry, George Mason, the Virginia delegation, these people to, to reassert these things which they thought they had already assumed as Englishmen by charter and royal privilege and, and this kind of period of benevolence in 1688 and, and royal, I don't know, like a negligence uh, led to a, a kind of conversation where we began to reject the 18th century constitution of Great Britain and we embraced a hundred year earlier Whiggish country party interpretation of the, the Gothic English constitution. And our revolution in a sense is a way of writing what we thought the rights of Englishmen were in that century before the revolution. So it's kind of like uh, we just did a remix, uh, a redo on what we thought the rights of Englishmen were, and we wrote it down. Um, and this kind of affected the entire world and, and the system of written constitutions worldwide. I knew nothing of this. Oh, well, specifically about militias. I mean, we can go on and on, but English republicanism is connected to the earliest republicanism, like in Machiavelli. Uh, and of course, Machiavelli was all about what's the best check on aristocratic and oligarchic power, individuals or freeholders owning owning arms. So it was, a, it was a big part of English Republican ideology from the 16th century through the English Civil War, the New Model Army, Cromwell, th this idea that somehow the, the common man represented the popular will, especially when he was armed. Uh, and so the English settlement of like uh, rights and so, I don't, I don't mean to pretend to be a professor here or something, but the English settlement of questions of, um, okay, divine right of kings or monarchical privilege versus, you know, parliament's privilege is a, is a way of also deriving or defining what the rights of Englishmen were, their settlements stopped with an absolute parliament. But in the in the American experience, our settlements stopped with something else. We were like, you know what, an absolute parliament is itself despotic. 
and we came up with this idea of federalism and state rights, and, and we settled the question just one more step away. And we said the militia power doesn't lie with the legislature, it in fact lies with the states and the popular militias. And this kind of gave us what became the Second Amendment. Do you think the, I mean, I know that there are certain militias that exist within the sure, US. Sure. I've seen, uh, I can't remember the story about, I wasn't prepared to, we were going to talk about this, but I remember <laughs> a story about a particular place where there was like access rights to a farm. I think it was and, in Nevada, wasn't was it? it Nevada? Oh, the Bunkerville Rebellion. Yeah. yeah the Bundy. Everybody knows about Bundy and yeah. the conflict with the feds. I'll say this first and foremost. The, so legally speaking, our militias have evolved in how our government understands them. So the, uh, the unorganized militia of, let's say, the 18th and 19th century is a different beast uh, than what we call the militia after the Civil War and the rise of the National Guard. And now the federal federal power has two specific bands of people that it recognizes as militia, which is more or less just the National Guard, like liberals will say. And a lot of people will just uh, assert themselves as, as state groups and say, well, we're the militia. And every now and then a state government might recognize that, but usually they don't. Um, and it's it's more of like a an appeal to tradition when somebody like Bundy gets up and asks people to come on out. He's appealing to the so-called unorganized militia. More like a band of brothers. Yeah, there's that like, um, that was just like a cultural moment. But Americans fell for it and the government fell for it because we do have this tradition of an organized militia, or at least this mythical figure of the Minuteman resisting, uh, you know, tyranny or something. But, and I've, I've seen it before, instances where there's a group of people who will turn up it to the local, correct me if I get this wrong, like state building or capital building yeah. with, with their guns. You're thinking of Michigan and Whitmer and the early protests there, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. This is common. In fact, in the Texas state capital, you're allowed to show up armed. Um, a lot of people discovered during COVID there weren't laws against these kinds of things. So, so do you believe in the U.S. you essentially have almost like a, this decentralized militia now that is, if, an, if it was ever required, would band together? <clears throat> well, Or does it meet, need more organization? I now? think there's two parts to your question. So I, I yeah. do think there is this disorganized, unorganized militia, maybe harder emphasis on disorganized. but And that's simply like the, uh, the free citizens of the country who are allowed to keep and bear arms. You know, they're not otherwise barred from, from that. They do, I think, in a, in a constitutional sense, represent like a, another structural power of government. Um, but the second part of your question is, would they show up? And I don't think we have the type of people that would meaningfully show up, or we would have seen greater action during COVID, I think. Interesting. Just my opinion. Just to show you a part of this as well, Jessica. Yeah, okay. I, 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 I gave, I'm just learning. Jessica, what no, do you think? Um, we get, we'll come to the film, yeah, and no we'll problem. make sure we talk to people about that. Um, but I, get, I gave my little speechy intro of my mm -hmm. view on guns yeah. what was your background and has it changed during the process of making this film um well i'm from texas okay. and i grew up actually shooting doing everything with my father so to me it was a cultural thing it was something i did it was a little bit social learned how to operate guns i wasn't i didn't get taught to be scared um moved to new york there's no gun culture there wasn't around it for a decade plus. It's a small gun culture of people shouldn't each other it's, in the head. Oh God, the different kind of, yeah. Um, yeah, it is a different culture. It's the gang, gang gun culture. It's mm. another American culture of guns. Um, and, that's a, that's and, a good point. Like yeah. at some point we should probably discuss the black tradition in arms, which is uniquely American and has its own two, 300 year history, but go ahead. No, there's, there's different, I think there's different cultures. There's like mm. the family, there's the, 
the small town, well, there's different like types of gun culture in the United States. It's too big for one form. Um, and so completely separated, suddenly I started making a first doc. I didn't realize it was going to be about guns. Within a month, I had met Cody. This was 2013. So we're going on nine years almost. Um, wow. And uh, he was part of my first documentary. And all of a sudden, because we had so many things in the news, it was a real discussion of whether or not control was even efficacious. Like, what is this conversation on control? Does it actually mean anything? Is it just a political, you know, marketing tool? Kind of like Biden's last statement. What was it? His tweet, he's going to take all assault rifles away. Is that what he said? Yeah. Complete impossibility. I don't, I don't follow his Twitter. <laughs> You're missing out. <laughs> did, you watch, uh, <laughs> did you watch his State of the Union address? Sure. Any standout moments for you? Not really. Uh, I guess mistaking Ukrainians for Iranians was, uh, a, was a high point. Uh, I feel bad for him, man. Old man, you know. Yeah. Pushed beyond his limits. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So I'm not I'm not a um, a stranger to guns, but that was the first talk actually put it in the sphere of the political. Um, and when <laughs> Cody jumps into that world symbolically, suddenly it was no longer symbolic. Right. It just kind of iterated out to where we are today. Um, so yeah, I'm not against guns. I think Second Amendment is a very necessary and strong uh, safety. And I think without arms, genocides happen. Hmm. Yeah. We'll come back to that. Okay. That's big, <laughs> that's, that is a big topic. Um, okay, so before we move on to some of the things I want to talk about, you mentioned black gun culture. Can you yeah. explain to me what the difference is there? Well, I, there really is a parallel, separate, and really like an, almost antithetical black tradition in arms. That's how Johnson discusses it. And that black tradition of arms, like you would expect, especially in America, comes from a place of you know disempowerment, slavery, not really having a firm legal right to keep and bear. What I find interesting, especially in the studies I've done in the last couple of years, rather than, um, I don't know, embrace the new mythology that like, you know, the country was always racist, the second man was always racist, it was only for white people. What we find is, you know, Ida Wells and the early NAACP, Martin Luther King, all these people, they, they had a firm tradition in arms and, and self-defense and defending themselves against the private violence of not just racists, but the state itself. And, and most of the early gun control or the gun control that we deal with in the courts comes from the post-Civil War Reconstruction era, trying to dispossess, you know, the newly freed, uh, the newly freed slaves or the, the freedmen. And then when we look at the 39th Congress and people trying to build uh, the rights uh, for the freedmen in the 14th Amendment and other, uh, and other innovations, it's very clear that the 39th Congress and its deliberations expected and understood one of the, the, the privileges and immunities of U.S. citizenship to be the right to keep and bear arms. That's very clearly in, the, in that communication. And oftentimes, Freedmen's Bureaus in the South would write to, to the White House or to, to Congress and say, hey, we're being, uh, we're being deprived of our Second Amendment. So that conversation, in a way, in an individual sense, kind of begins with the deprivations and, and the injuries to freedmen, to black people. So we can kind of thank them from the beginning for changing this collective militia-based understanding of the right to this individual, um, you know, appellate 
way, like appealing to power and thinking, hey, this is individual immunity. So just at the birth of the 14th Amendment, we also have this individual understanding of, this, of the second. Of course, it took a couple hundred years for the courts to, to thoroughly recognize it that way. I've talked about it on the show a few times because the majority of the audience is American. Probably 80% of the people we interview are American, maybe higher. And a lot of time here that uh, as a British people, person coming here, I, I envy the fact that it is a republic. You know, in the UK, you can live wherever mm. you want. All the rules are the same. There's no competition. Um, but also we have no constitution. We have no protections. Uh, I'm involved in a libel lawsuit for some tweets, so I have no... Dang. We don't have real free speech in the UK, even as a journalist. Yeah. Um, that's something I do envy, not so much the Second Amendment, but more because of what I, I said earlier. But one of the things I found interesting coming back here is that I find on a state level, especially when I come to someone like Texas, there's a real defense of the Constitution. But as I observe externally, it always feels like the Constitution's under attack. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, this is a common meta-narrative in American politics. Yeah. Some, someone's here to uphold the Constitution. Someone's here, you know, they're here to destroy the Constitution. I feel like it's kicked up in the last two years beyond anything, though. Mm. Or at least in the sure. public sphere and space of Twitter and... I guess the power of the individual to like defame it. Yeah. (laughs) Everything on social media becomes so toxic and ratcheted up. I mean, I think that's as American a a political conversation as possible. I mean, who are the defenders of the constitution? You know, who are its enemies? And uh, this is a way we do, we do friend enemy in in the U S you know, we, we fetishize the document. We fetishize what it means. Joe Biden's out there in the press right now saying like, well, you know, he's, he's just nominated his new Supreme court. Nominee Jackson, Katanji, Katanji Brown, I don't remember her name. Um, and he says, well, you know, I hope she finds something in the Ninth Amendment. There's all these, there's all these mythical appeals to the Constitution. Ooh, what will we find there? You know, I don't know. That's just, for me, that's the foundation of how we do political discourse, or at least on TV. What's the Ninth Amendment? I only know the first two. Off by, I think I know a bit about, I think, four. Uh, I think the Ninth is about unenumerated rights. Okay. For example, the Ninth and Tenth are about this, like those not reserved to the, to the states or to the people and... Ninth and tenth are like that. And I think um, it's a mistake on his part, but I think he believes, and a number of progressives believe, that um, the right to abortion, for example, was heavily derived from the Ninth Amendment. That's not really how it happened. The court kind of found it in the right to privacy and, and did some other things. But anyway, like um, liberals pretend, right, they have their own pretense for how they're actually the, the defenders of the Constitution. But I think conservatives in America have a more, I don't know, traditionally understood and kind of convincing narrative for how they're, in fact, its defenders. Yeah, well, I've found that traveling a lot around the US. I've been to about 14 states now. I tend to find within, I tend to find that uh, blue states tend to be a little bit more European. Yeah. And red yeah. states tend to be a little bit more traditional American, which is kind of obvious. Um, going back to the Second Amendment, the, the right to bear arms, it's quite a, uh, you, can, you could uh, interpret it broadly. Um, but is that a good thing? Is it? Well, I don't know. I, there's the Second Amendment as we might um, wish it to be. Yeah. And there's the Second Amendment as it actually exists now since 2008, as interpreted by the Supreme Court. And those are two different things. I don't know the Supreme Court interpretation. What does that In say? In a sense, the, the Second Amendment only really existed in the United States since 2008, a decision mm-hmm. called Heller, um, Heller versus D.C. And um, Scalia wrote that opinion and he established a test and he defined, with a lot of footnotes, what the Second Amendment means. But Heller says the Second Amendment does give an individual the right to keep and bear arms, but it's it comes with a number of other pieces of baggage and tests. And so those arms are arms in common use, things uh, uses for lawful traditional purposes, and it really allows states to make 
regulations and, and restrictions that are based on their historical restrictions and regulations. And, and it also defines it like, you know, innovations in gun technology and culture aren't really that possible. Like if the state has the power to kind of curtail them. So in the conversation of 3D printed guns, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's not clear at all that the Second Amendment protects them, at least not yet. Um, if anything, like, um, oh, who said it? I forget the professor. I really respect this professor. At the moment, his name escapes me, but he's like, really, if the Second Amendment means anything right now, at its, at its least, it means you can have a handgun kept in a lockbox under your bed, maybe, that the government can kind of tell you when to take it in and take it out. That's kind of the most the Heller Second Amendment means. Now, obviously, there have been developments since then, but the, the court doesn't see fit to elaborate and expand uh, the meaning yet. Well, Heller was the only one that did kind of modernize, right? And McDonald reinforced it against yeah. the states, and so you, you can knock state restrictions down. But we're looking for, like, New York Rifle and Pistol Association and these other cases to expand, like, what you can do with this. Can I take it in my car? Can I carry the gun outside of my home? Like, Heller confines the right to a private right of a certain type of common gun in the home. It's a, it's a pretty cabined thing right now, and it's been that way for, you know, over 10 years. There's a lot of fights in New York now yeah. for people to get guns. I guess we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. But that would really change so that's, the social world of guns in New York City if it did happen. I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to say something counterfactual. I mean, the Second Amendment as it exists as a creature in the law is, is, is kind of a tame thing. Yeah. Uh, but it's unique. Uh, I don't think there's any other state or set of states outside of maybe, didn't the Czech Republic just do something? But no. There's very few, very few countries that say like, well, you really do have this right. You can have a gun. Does, is it Switzerland or Switzerland? I'm not sure. Yeah, they have. Switzerland, like, they can have. They arms. have a traditional, like, militia purpose yeah. for keeping guns at home. But, but I mean, like, in the way that the Second Amendment is now defined in, in the United States, I think there's only one or two other countries that even have something similar legally. Has has that Second Amendment been tested more because of your work? What you've been doing? Mm, not yet. I mean, it, it's being tested in its in its initial phases, where cities and states have begun to pass laws, which, as far as I know, they haven't enforced saying like, well, you can't make this, or you can't have this file, or you can't have this component. These are new. These are new like in the last four or five years uh, at their oldest. I'm, I'm suing one of the oldest laws. This was passed in New Jersey in 2018, saying no one can even possess the files, you know, the 3D printed gun. That seems to me to not even touch on the Second Amendment. That seems to me to touch on the first. You're suing the law. I'm suing the state of New Jersey, yeah. uh, the attorney general and other people. But, but I know as well, like, th these are, there are practical reasons. Like, those laws are often passed just to attack me. Right. Well, th they specifically named Cody during the attack. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just like a 3D file. It's this man, Cody Wilson. So that's why he can sue. That's Interesting. true. We were given jurisdiction in the Fifth Circuit against New Jersey in, in this example because uh, they, they messed up and held, held a press conference. They were like, well, we got to stop Cody Wilson's supporters somehow. And uh, so that's good. Sometimes and, you get lucky. And didn't go after anyone else. And that, that's been the funny thing, yeah. funny, the ironic thing about this whole journey of the last nine years. It's everywhere. This information is all over. And now there's even more um, groups that have spun up that have operating websites that are giving this information out. But still, Cody and um, Defense Distributed is the only one that is still in the hot hot seat. But that was similar if you go back to what happened to Ross Ulbricht. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. He's in prison for the rest of his life, double life sentence plus 40 years yeah. for creating a website. We don't need to argue the ethics of that right now. 
but uh, the guy who created the second website afterwards, I think, got five years. That's right. And somebody, I think, one guy didn't even get any time. So, like, yeah, by the time you're you the get example, to, they want to crush you, yeah, to scare the others off. For sure, I think that's right, and um, it makes perfect sense. And I'm not complaining about it. I I like it, you know, as long as I can handle it. And when I can't handle it, I don't like it. But uh, <laughs> how many lawsuits do you have at the moment? Uh, five or six. Five or six federal lawsuits. Uh, we're co-defendants in a in a big state action too in California. We're only being sued for like half a billion dollars. It's no big deal. Ah, small one. I think we'll be fine. Uh, so you know what the um, gun controllers, if you want to call them that, have discovered is that you know it's it's more it makes more sense to just attack from all angles at all levels, not just big cases with multiple states and federal court. That slows everything down. So we also get sued all the time by uh, states, cities, private parties. And so, I mean, I have a lawsuit at the moment, uh, mm -hmm. and it's just one, and yeah. it's, it's stressful. Doesn't it ruin your day? It can do. Some days it does. If uh, if you, I can't talk about it too much, but like yeah. certain things happen, and and it just it puts me in a bad place for a day, and then I get to forget about it. But it's it's hanging over me all the time. But yeah. you're at the point now. It seems like mine will end, and life will move on. It feels like you're going to be in this. For as long as you're doing this. So is yeah. it now just part of the process? I think so. I think you can get, unfortunately, I think you can get used to almost any level of duress and pain, humiliation. And uh, and so this is just a part of it now. Now, I, I try not to add more than one or two lawsuits a year, you know? <laughs> so we had one that I didn't like. This year we're being sued. Uh, DefCat, our file sharing site's being sued uh, in the Southern District of New York. That one felt gratuitous to me, but that's a gun control group attacking us on, on First Amendment and IP grounds. And that's already been a couple hundred thousand that, you know, I didn't want to spend. Um, so I, I do see that I'm not running as hard as I used to run because it's like, well, how many lawsuits can you carry at one time, right? This is insane. They're expensive. Uh, but luckily, like Jessica said, there's lots of communities um, who proceed pretty much uninterrupted yeah. from what I can see. So good, you know. Jessica, just yeah. explain the film to the people listening, what you've been working on and why you're here. So um, thank you for making this happen. <laughs> you're welcome. It's fun. <laughs> um, after, I'll just kind of give you a brief. So after my first film ended, got purchased, I was still very into this conversation and Cody's story and where this was going. So in 2015, I picked my camera back up and Cody agreed to having me still film him. I didn't know what that was going to mean. I obviously didn't know. It was going to be seven years later. It's been seven years at that moment, there was a lot of lawsuits happening. This was a very kind of like heavy kind of lawsuit film, which not story-wise, not so interesting. But there has been a lot that's happened. And most interesting, well, there's a lot of interesting things, but in the world of 3D gun culture and what's happened in 2013, when it was a mischievous, symbolic performance art piece and how that challenged like the monopoly of violence but the other characters, if you want, that were in this world, they weren't really as abundantly creative and willing to be brave within the space. When you jump to like 2018 and 2019, certain players actually started playing and they started understanding the game of the symbolic and the physical. Um, and that leads us to people like uh, Jay Stark, you know, rest in peace. Yeah. who created an FCG9 with the specific reasoning that he wanted people to have it that, I mean, not necessarily Americans. He wanted to, I think he would be very proud to see it in Myanmar right now. Um, 
So the film has been seven years of watching Cody Wilson, Defense Distributed, the events that have happened in between, um, and the people that have spun up in kind of Cody's momentary absence and what they made. Um, and how that this entire time, this challenge to the government and has created kind of this space for continuous lawsuits, continue, continuous laws, but still no one can control this. Because in the end, like Cody was saying earlier, they're fighting information and files. No one's handing people guns. Mm -hmm. Nobody's dealing with physical things. You can't give that over the internet. This is the consequence of information online. And how do you fight the distribution of knowledge? And definitely in the last two years, a lot of people have been trying to fight the distribution of knowledge under the theme of misinformation. It, it, but it's impossible. Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of super interesting stuff to dig in there. Uh, just, just the short version, Cody, because you've probably mm -hmm. done this a whole bunch of times. But uh. Uh, just for the people listening who won't know everything, yeah. can you just give us uh, how you went from Co Cody, the, the guy likes guns, to Cody, <laughs> the printed gun guy? Like, how, how did that happen? What, yeah. what, what was that transition? Yeah, I, I can say in a few words. I, I think I was never the guy who liked guns, and that was probably the best. Oh, really? That was the best thing. Yeah, I mean, I come from the South and everything. I yeah. certainly liked the revolutionary ideology of you know, the Minuteman and the things we mm -hmm. talked about earlier. I like guns in that respect. Wow, the Second Amendment and its radical possibility. But um, I was inspired while I was in law school. It was 2011. I watched one man single-handedly defeat the payments industry, you know, the international set of, of world governments. And uh, his name was Julian Assange, right? This was Cablegate. And I was like, oh, my God. I didn't know what he believed. I didn't know what he was about. But I was like, if... If there's a future for the political on the internet, this, it's things like this. How could we do WikiLeaks for guns? That's the advent of my company, WikiLeaks for guns. At the time, was the technology there? Sure. Yeah. What I recognize is like it was already there. You know, we, we went to cncguns.com. We discovered, wow, there's all these blueprints already on the internet. Not necessarily 3D printed gun blueprints, but, but 3D printers themselves. It just got to this moment. MakerBot was taking off. RepRap in the UK had a big mm. you know reputation. Anderson had just published his book on the the new industrial revolution. And I was like, you know what? I don't think people were ready for that conversation. Guns are downloadable, right? It, it, it spills out this new kind of grammar. And uh, just like Jessica was saying, imagine a power which gives itself the right to regulate downloadable guns, but can a power like that actually exist? And what if we provoked it to try to exist? And sometimes they, this power doesn't even understand what it's dealing with. When you actually, if you go and see the little teaser that's gonna be on my website, we have a senator that says you can go to Instagram again at Instagun. I mean, it's an amazing quote. Like, what is he even talking about? It's cute. It's cute. <laughs> like the the like this entire time, everyone's everyone's been trying to understand and capture and control a thing that they can't even express or understand. Well, I'll verbally. be I'll be more cynical though. Like, yeah. you know, like in 2018 is when we first we were just a couple years ahead of this COVID lockdown and everything. And I, I mean the digital lockdown, not the physical ones. We've been early to deplatforming, and so when a senator says you can go to Instagram and get an Instagram, he's telling, hey, Facebook, Instagram, mm -hmm. right? Like, you're not, no one's going to be posting about this on your platform. Like, the, these politicians see these platforms as extensions of the progressive new middle class agenda you know they prefer to like assange had written in 2014 and after 
They prefer to exercise their power, not through state organs now, but Google, Facebook. You know, that's how they see the- It's effective. It's their privilege to regulate the internet. So I would say maybe there's more of that in there than, than you might think. He's not sure. just being dumb. Um. Although he's also being dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is there over the last two years we've seen this massive increase in power yeah. to censor speech across uh, social platforms, Google, Facebook, etc. But also financial censorship. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we we saw it a small amount with the Canadian truckers trying to raise funds, mm -hmm. and now we've seen an entire country be deplatformed yeah. of every major payment rail. So I think it's what's being, and what you want is other people to realize that these things aren't good. Like people are supporting it, not everyone, but realize that these forms of censorship aren't good because it shows how much power yeah. a small group of people can have if they don't like what you're saying. It, sure. At least COVID has exposed a, a wide group of people to this and accusations of terrorism and thought crime. And, you know, it used to be, I have to explain to my grandma, you know, why do they call you a terrorist, Cody, with the gun thing, right? And that's that's harder the most but, dangerous man in the world right but now that kind of everyone has been called a terrorist at one point or another for saying something about the vax do you know what i mean it's like all right yeah i think we all kind of see where this is going <laughs> in 2013 or 2014 cody was like so this everyone's going to be called an ist you know yeah or, or in nine years it's gonna all be happening and it actually and did look at assange just, assange was your canary right even before snowden he's like look he gets completely deplatformed he, he gets kicked off of visa mastercard right PayPal. amex everything yeah. You know, the only reason I did Bitcoin is because I saw Sandra's doing Bitcoin. And I had an article coming out. This is the summer of 2012. It was going to be my first article, I think, at Forbes magazine. Oh, you know, WikiWeapon is what we called it before we had a name for what we were doing. And I had a PayPal button on my website. And I think this is purely coincidental. But the day before, the night before the piece ran, I lost my PayPal account. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? This thing's going to run tomorrow. I don't have time to set anything else up. I put a Bitcoin button up on my website. And that was the greatest decision I had ever made. Is is, is there a, um, a real symbiotic relationship between the gun work that you've done, the printed guns, and Bitcoin? Well, I, I think so. Yeah, I, I don't know if if you want me to really jump in. Yeah, I, you know, Amir Taki saw that I was doing WikiWeapon September of 2012, and he was like, "Hey, I'm doing a one of the first Bitcoin conferences in Europe." Is he the guy who went off to fight ISIS? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so there's your gun relationship. <laughs> yeah, but Amir saw it before I did. Yeah. He was like, look, I'm doing a Bitcoin conference. What you're doing is exactly like what this is about. And he explained Satoshi to me and a lot of things that I hadn't really taken the time. to. Maybe I'd heard about Bitcoin in college. I didn't take it seriously. But I, like I said, I was starting to accept it because uh, it was the only Bitcoin uh, that I'd had. So the Bitcoin forums found me. Therefore, Amir found me. He invited me to a Bitcoin conference. I met a lot of the earliest people in Bitcoin you know, that year at that conference and, and thereafter had a pretty intimate relationship with the first you know, big people in Bitcoin and Bitcoin Core. Wow. Okay, let's um, let's go back to like this history piece, whereby you you start with the printed guns, but it becomes really a company, defense distributed. Mm -hmm. what, what was the transition? Was that was that a tactical thing, or was it just an economic opportunity? Mm -hmm. I would call it um, the necessity of anti fragility. Okay. Okay, so yeah, when we're just putting gun files up on the internet, I had collected a number that were deplatformed at the time from other 3D websites. And so I had kind of created a, a hub for people who were also meaning to do this work. And I'd created an IRC channel and forums. And then we had had three or four files that we had developed on our own, AR-15 receiver, AR-15 magazines, things like this. But go ahead. That was the first iteration of DEFCAD. 
Yeah, we call this website DevCAD. And in a sense, the history of our company and the legal disputes and everything after is really a history of this website and the governments of different stripes attempting to keep this website off the internet. And this is one way to, to kind of re retell the story. Um, but when you get in trouble with the feds and let's say the US State Department, US State Department runs the world. And uh, they, they shut me down quite effectively when I released Liberator about two days later. They said, look, you violated you know, an untold number of export uh, restrictions, laws. Each one of these violations carries, you know, millions of dollars in fines, 20 years in prison. They were like, you know, you're done. And um, they kind of suspended everything for me. It was like 90 days of me being like, well, I'm done. Damn, I didn't think I'd be done. So what am I, like 25 at this point? I was like, wow, it was a good run. Um, and then I decided very slowly, I was like, you know, maybe if they're not going to do me tomorrow, I can get as big as my problem, bigger than my problem, but I needed to make money. And that's when I first decided to, to make a commercial hardware company based on our, our principles and to try to make enough money to sue the State Department and start the whole cycle over again, just maybe. And that's where the film restarts. Okay. <laughs> In a way, yeah. Our first In product was, was called Ghost Gunner, and that's yeah. that's how we became a company and how we you know, became a profit center. But most, I would have thought a lot of people in this scenario, yeah, facing the feds, the State Department, billions yeah. of dollars in fine, potential jail time? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We think, hmm, maybe this is the time to step back. What, yeah. what was the, I don't want to I hesitate to use the word loophole, but what was it? That's the right question. Okay, what was the, what had you spotted? Well, it's not that I'd spotted anything. I realized we were out, this was a frontier, all right? This is the gray, okay? This isn't the black and, oh, you messed up. The law didn't exist here, okay? This was something, even the State Department regulations they were using hadn't been updated since the 1980s. They don't understand or, or interpret an internet to be existing. And so, in fact, there were strong arguments that what we were doing, what we had done, uh, was legal. And, and what had been done against us was, you know, a deprivation of, like, our First Amendment. At least there's that strong argument. But to answer your question more directly, it's like when you're outside of the law and the law hasn't gotten there yet, you should find a, a certain confidence in that. I think that's how Uber did what they did. They sidestepped the whole taxi thing and went to a place where the law didn't exist and they were able to scale there. I did the same thing because it took states and the feds about five years to build a legal structure. And in that time, I was able to scale to a large multi-million dollar company. Do you think, uh, I'm, I haven't really thought this through enough because... Uh, I've just come to it right now, but do you think if, say, Ross Ulbrich had been public yeah. and created a website yeah. and made the money public, he, he he might have had a defense for his? He was dealing with something that was specifically known in this country as illegal, though. I, I think th that's the difference. I think there's a way, look, I don't, Ross is a smart guy, mm. but there's a way if Ross was running, let's say, a classified system, mm. you know, and the system was a bit of a, like an agnostic marketplace, like, kind of like how Open Bazaar wanted to be, if you remember Open Bazaar. Yeah, I do, sure. yeah. There's a way that Ross could have at least have argued, well, I'm not, and I'm sure he did argue this. But um, unfortunately, the investigations kind of show that he was a direct broker and facilitator. And, yeah. Yeah, administrator. So I think there's a way, but I mean, he he, he was right there, right? He was yeah. touching that third rail. And, and at least in our case, we have these, you know, like the Second Amendment, there's no right to uh, keep and bear drugs. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we at least have this argument that like, Okay, I mean, uh, you have the right to the information about guns. You clearly have the right to keep and bear these guns. Probably there's a right in the middle, meaning something like you have the right to make the guns. Uh, so this is in territory where we know the state doesn't want us to be. But unfortunately, they haven't figured out their own grammar for how to keep us out of it.
And it's super nebulous as well because you can get the technical data from the guns sometimes from government agencies that you apply to. And tech, and a lot of the right. information that Cody posts or yeah. distributes or other 3D teams, groups, yeah. are is just technical data. The funniest stuff about some of these state laws now is that like it's illegal to have the data and to find it or for anyone to distribute it. But the biggest distributors of the information are like the, the Army Publishing Directorate or the Library of Congress or you see what I'm saying? You can find these things. Uh, the U.S. government is the largest repository of this information, and it's all public because, of course, it was all developed, you know, with tax money. And uh, Springfield Armory and these places are, uh, you just develop these interesting uh, contradictions and you push the system into what Baudrillard would call, like, it's hyperlogic. And, and it's kind of its own problem. It, it's tending itself towards suicide. I'm kind of sitting over here just, like, watching it do it, you know. And so you, you faced um, challenges from the federal government, but also individual states. Have you actually def been defended by any individual states? Good question. In a, in a sense, when we say like a state has defended you, usually what that means is they've shown up as an amicus, like in a federal suit, and they've written a brief saying like, well, you know, we're in support of this or we're against this. Um, so in some cases, yes, there have been coalitions of states, just like because America does this red team, blue team thing. So often in big contentious constitutional matters, okay, 20 red states will show up or 30 blue states will show up and they'll do these amicus things. Uh, so every now and then when I get up at the appellate level, some states will weigh in. Um, but that's almost, you know, it's not like they're really protecting me. In fact, they don't want to be accused of that. You know, I'm quite a toxic figure, but, uh, but they recognize, I think, some of the constitutional import of what we're doing uh, and they show up. And for you doing this, you're, you're obviously a, a, a character who kind of like challenges some people, but like for some people you're a total hero and others you're, Probably yeah. the devil. Absolute villain. Probably. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what's it like being in that position? Do you, do you even think about it or have you just had to build up this like armory that... Yeah, I used to think about it more. Yeah. You know, um, I, but I guess it's to where like, I mean, I don't get protested. I don't get, it's not like what you'd think. I don't think I'm like a fixture of the cultural narrative. I think even both sides probably would like to just pretend I don't exist and it's just better for everybody and it's better for me too. Uh, so kind of, I, I've learned every time I'm, um, I'm, I'm too seen the mainstream, like there was a Trump tweet one time. Anytime I'm too seen, it ruins my life. Like something bad happens. Someone takes me out, cuts my knees out. And uh, it takes years to recover every single time, you know, with the lawsuits and everything. And, and so I have a, I have a, a post-traumatic relationship with my own success. I, <laughs> I like to not be too seen. It's probably been three or four years since I've done a, you know, a podcast or, or a talk on any level like okay. yours. And it does make me nervous. Appreciate that. Okay, so but, 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 <laughs> <laughs> let's go. Just, just gonna sneak in the manipulative. Yeah, like, that's why you. Uh, that's why you said no last time. Uh, <laughs> I, no, I'm glad to do it. I, I, but I, you're absolutely right. That is why I said no, and it it wasn't any kind of you know slide. It's just no. I understand. Sometimes you're wanted levels too high. You've played Grand Theft Auto. You know, you, yeah, you can't do it. Well, yeah, but when I play Grand Theft Auto, I enjoy yeah. the six stars because you, <laughs> you want the SWAT teams coming after you and you want to evade them. Well, when you're in Taiwan and yeah. U.S. Marshals and SWAT teams are literally coming after you, you're like, wow, playing life on legendary difficulty is exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you don't really uh, enjoy it for very long. Yeah, it's a, it's a different scenario. Okay, so back to, to Defense Distributed. Uh, it's a business, it's a commercial mm -hmm. enterprise, but I can't figure out whether... I mean, you, obviously you're both, but like, are you an entrepreneur or are you on a life mission, which is defending a certain amount of rights? Honestly, I'll tell you, I think it's, I think it's neither. Okay. Um, I don't know that I'm an entrepreneur because I, because I'm not very good at business. I, I try to get better. <laughs> I think I'm better than I used to be. Yeah. Um, but for me, everything begins with the symbolic layer of, of our culture, 
or you could say like our sociology. And so like in Bitcoin and, and Austrian economics, the kind of favorite sociology of like uh, that type of business person, everything's reason oriented, praxeology, what's, what's my best you know, decision. And uh, Curtis calls it pig philosophy. Uh, everything's based on these hedonic indicators. And, you know, I'm going to make a good decision versus a, a bad trade-off. Uh, I start with um, what's, what's the most eruptive? What's the most initiatory? Like what challenges power? Like what's exciting? How do I align my fears and my hopes in, in one thing? And, you know, how, what's a desperate decision that can actually start a symbolic chain reaction, you know? And then how do I pursue that? How do I do something like a, an artistic act or a, a created object that could be received by an audience as like this kind of provocation um, to I- initiate some type of chain reaction? And so you're an artist, a provocateur. Yeah, it's probably art, right? It's probably <laughs> art. Uh, but you know, I'm not. I, I'm not so pretentious. It, it's mostly business now. Yeah. But everything, every product, um, it has to follow this strict set of rules. It has to be an analogy for something. It has to introduce uh, elements of randomness and like ludic qualities, and it has to kind of have its own logic and be understood as something else by a specific audience. Uh, if it doesn't do those things, well, then yeah, it's just naked craftsmanship or something and that's boring. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying, I'm a hodler, but I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's Level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Next up, it's sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But... How's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? 
Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Also today, we have Compass Mining. And they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, wow, what is it, like four months now? And I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining. And I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Have you seen a change over these seven years? Well, you must have seen yes some and no. Change, I mean, I absolutely think it's performance art. It's not just an art piece; it's performance art. It's, you know, it's a the critique. unpretentious. We can we can claim it as you just can't. She's diminishing me by <laughs> Sorry. no, no, but not because, but, it, because it does the thing it says it's, it's going to do. It, it yeah. does yeah. the thing, and it's nothing if it doesn't do the thing. It, it forces it forces the hand or forces the onlooker to deal with it. That's why it's also performance art. It's just not something that's put on the wall and you can walk by it and ignore it. It's it's a it's a, a piece. It's like a Baramovich cutting a star on her abdomen while sitting on ice in a room. You can't ignore it, whether you like the woman or not. This is a a, a, a graphic and and um, uh, aggressive uh, form that means to critique. I think it's been. It's also like I've I've saw it come first from a very mischievous place. Yeah. Not to overuse no, the idea true. of a it's troll. True. Yeah. But like. And in like a very mischievous kind of troll that, but knew, knew exactly what it purported to, to want to do, but I which think, was to challenge. But I think there's two types of, tro- there is, there is vicious, unnecessary bully trolling, which we get a lot of, yeah. but then there is trolling, which is, which challenges people to think. It's a challenge. Yeah, it's a challenge. And, and the challenge for me in su- such a scenario with what you're doing yeah. and why I wanted to talk to you is because, uh, I actually don't, th- the challenge isn't with regards to the US. That's not really what I'm thinking about. It is, yeah. wow, this is, technology is fantastic for people in Myanmar right now, you know, under attack from the government. But, shit, what does this mean if some kid in the UK gets access to this where I live, where we don't have a gun culture, and I'm weighing up that, it's, it's a bit like um, Bitcoin, it's, you know, Bitcoin can be used right now to raise money for the Ukrainian army, and it can also be used right now by North Korea. It's like these situations when you make these technologies openly available, it's available to everyone. What does it mean for both? And that, that makes you think about these things. Mm. It's the, the same question conversation that has kicked up ever since 2012, right? What, how do you differentiate between the usefulness of it and like that one bad actor or that one bad instant? And you can't just bring you back up Silk Road. They really went with this moral attack at the end after they, you know, after they sentenced him by bringing up all the parents and they created this kind of like moral attack on him. How could you, because which unfortunate things happen, but you can't denounce an entire like 
a different kind of ethics. And he was creating a different kind of way of looking at the distribution of drugs, like eBay, but better. We're going we're gonna to offer it off the streets. Whether you like it or not, there was, there was a beauty to it. There was an elegance. Yeah. So in the same way, um, offering the ability for individuals to return to self-defense is going to have an opposite. There's always going to be the negative and positive, but is it positive? Does the positive outweigh those situations? I can give you a, a personal story on that silk road yeah. one because it helps me understand why why people, how people manipulate people. So I was a silk road user at, at the time, and I was a, uh, essentially a cocaine addict, yeah. uh, a regular user of cocaine. I don't take any drugs now. Uh, besides that one, besides that one. Um, <laughs> but at the time I was in a bad way yeah. and I ended up using the forums on the Silk Road that actually helped me realize my problem and deal with it Interesting. and the Drug Policy Alliance uh, is very clear that the Silk Road reduced harm, reduced violence and reduced damage because it was a better product so the, there was less risk of contamination um, uh, there was less violence on the street because it was packaged delivery mm-hmm. and the forums were there. So when they brought the, I think it was like, was there seven deaths associated with the Silk Road? That was used for an emotional reaction. Yeah. It wasn't objective in any way. They brought the parents in for the impact yeah, statement. I was, yeah. I was sitting there. Oh, you were there? Yeah, I was Oh, there. wow. So I can imagine there are very similar emotional examples that may or could be used against you. You would think they so. Try. You would think so. But yeah. living in a world of printed guns for so long, what, almost a decade, there aren't really classic examples yet. Um, it's more done in questioning. Which is and telling in its own way. But, but it could happen. There could be a scenario where somebody does. Well, let's say it will happen. Okay. Let's, it will say, happen. let's say it will. But uh, there, are so, there are bigger differences between the Silk Road, I think, and our operation. Probably first and foremost, that like our philosophical principles begin with, because it's code, they begin with the freedom of speech, like we've discussed, and then they begin with like open source software development principles. Uh, and so it's more like, um, you know, books and bullets have their own destinies. Like uh, it's more like we create something and it's, a, it's technological, it's software. It can exist on the free internet and in digitality, it can multiply endlessly. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's not like we're um, a business um, establishing the quality of a product, although there's elements of that. It's more like we're contributing to the, total knowledge of society and it just so happens that it's easy to make a gun no matter what country you're in it's easy to do um, that's something that governments can't easily deal with and in fact you should then from a, like a materialist point of view you should look back and say hmm what type of government is now allowed or not allowed because of this state of technology carol quigley argued that democracy only became possible with the mass production of the rifle for example well we're all comfortable with democracy and, and the mass production of the rifle so what changes if, uh, you know, the home production of the SMG is now like a feature of, of the internet? I don't know, but that's the exciting possibility and that's the work that we're doing. And I guess this is an inevitability. So you recognize this. If it wasn't you, it'd be somebody else. And if it wasn't somebody else, it'd be another person. It's been said a lot. Yeah. I, it, it's no doubt true. You know, like we didn't invent 3D printers and we didn't invent the making of guns. It's not really true that 3D printed guns like begin with us. It's just that they begin with us in this important dimension of marketing or information capitalism where we put our own stamp on it and say, hey, this is like WikiLeaks and you need to try to deal with this. I mean, Mm. the first person was English, Luddy, Ludi. 
Oh yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. Philip Ludy was doing this work, you know, in the '90s and, and before, and he's a he was a an Englishman. Yeah, as far as I know, quickly arrested. Uh, and he was publishing <laughs> plans for stand guns and things like that on the internet. Well, I mean, the, so it's, it's a lot different in the UK. Uh, we have tighter controls around this. So even yeah. even if somebody, uh, the the way you prevent this in the UK, even if you have the ability to print one, ownership is this heavy penalty. Was it like five to ten years in prison just for owning a gun or being found with a gun? Sure. Yeah, I believe that. He was very courageous in his own terms to do this and to dispense the knowledge of it. Uh, but he had the same them. argument. He was like, I'm not yeah. giving away guns. I'm giving away information, information. blueprints. Yeah, this is where this this is where I get to a slightly different struggle with it because yeah. I think it's a slightly different risk in the UK because uh, sometimes I have to look at net gain, net loss, and I I don't think we as so there, uh, I was speaking to one of my friends recently. He works for the Met Police, and he's saying there is a scarcity of guns in the UK mm-hmm. for criminal gangs. So what tends to happen is guns get loaned around the country, mm-hmm. and when they eventually find a gun, they can associate all these different crimes around yeah. the country. It's been Use with so that scarcity is a problem, uh, but the the demand for guns is really at a criminal level, not at a uh, personal defence level. I believe, and that. therefore the release of something in the UK would almost certainly only be used at a criminal level because they've already decided they're willing to accept the risks, and that therefore supports crime without the other side of supporting defense because we don't have defense laws. So it comes with a different moral question than say in the US where you have the culture. Sure. I don't dispute it. In fact, all evidence that I, that I have from people in the UK too is that, okay, what has this changed? It's changed the criminal culture. Now, often at drug busts, you'll see 3D printers seized. and Oh, is that happening? So they're oh, all being used? Absolutely. And, and special you know, task force are assigned to understand like what they've been trying to make and who the person in the gang is that's the technology specialist the same way that you see like in eastern europe as drone specialists with organized crime and down at the border like we have you know the drug the drug gangs have drone specialists and you know these are features of the political limitations of of your island kingdom <laughs> the, the big thing i have for like the the uk gun culture is it, it sorry if you tried to import gun culture to the uk it's like we're in Texas now. You go out, I reckon almost everyone you speak to has some history with guns and they've probably been taught how to shoot guns, taught safety. But like if you gave guns to people in the UK, they'd have no fucking idea what to do with them. And I think that's a that would be a real challenge of trying to do it as well. Like no one knows how to shoot a gun in the UK. Where do you start? But you're describing like an autoimmune disease <laughs> from a social level, if you see what I'm saying. It's like, mm-hmm. well, okay, think of COVID in terms, right? Like, well, we haven't been exposed to this, so we'll die if we're exposed. And it's like, well, okay, but, you know, it's on the internet, right? Like, I don't have control over that. Like, when I was stopped in Heathrow years ago, they were like, well, where are they? Are they on you? And I'm like, you're missing the point. <laughs> <laughs> if you were stopped at Heathrow, they would have had guns, those police. Uh, I think they did. Yeah. Yeah. I was interrogated for some time uh, by some armed gentlemen. That's the, uh, that's the place you tend to see guns in the UK is at airports. Yeah. And they have big fucking guns. Makes sense. And they want the world. The war- and when I say they, I mean the planners, the people who design our societies. And thank God they don't actually have the power they intend to have. But they, ho- they want the whole world to be an airport. And then none of us will have a gun culture. And then none of us will know what to do. And, and maybe you we'll get the Australia. sense. That that's what they want, and uh, I'm not Did, interested. Sorry, <laughs> well, I mean, Australia. Australia has looser gun laws in the UK. At right, least, really? At least in um, not rifles. maybe not New South Wales, but what Queensland and uh, I forget. But yeah, like Western Australia has got better gun a better gun situation than mm. uh, than the UK. There were just just to be fair, there will be people in Australia who 
yeah, since guns were outlawed after where was that attack in uh, uh, some harbor? Um, it was the guy. That sounds right. Yeah, he yeah. killed like thirty people. They immediately outlawed guns. Um, there will be people, and on the left, and I think people on the left deserve as much respect as on the right because we will have an opinion. We'll say uh, Australia has become a safer place. There will be other people who turn around and say, "Yep," but the government's become authoritarian and the population doesn't have weapons to defend themselves. Uh, but when you also talk about you don't really, COVID proved you don't really have a well-armed militia, sometimes oh, sure. you, have to, you have to say, well, what are the trade It's all about trade-offs. Do we want a, a safe, centralized society? Yeah. Or do we want a, a more decentralized personal responsibility society? And, and different people want one, different people want the other. Tra- trade-offs is the conversation if you're you know, an economist or you know, like a, a Marxist or an Austrian or something, but this is a very narrow dimension of talking about life, I think. And I know we're, we're trying to talk about maybe political science or political economy, but that's not all there is to life. Mm-hmm. Bojard, one of his famous, or my, to me, one of my favorite quotes of his is, there's simply more to hope for in a regime that doesn't have control of information, doesn't have control of arms. It's simply more possible. Do you understand how this is, this is outside of the question of what are our trade-offs? Well, that's what, if you'll forgive me, that's mm-hmm. an English way to look at the problem. And uh, there may be other ways of living. But, but, but that is it. There, it is an English way to look at the problem. And I am English. And, and <laughs> cult, cu- culturally... But Cody, I am English. Well, no, but, so I interviewed... Um, I, I had a conversation with Marty Bent, who has a similar podcast the mm-hmm. other day. And me and him both have Bitcoin podcasts, but we approach most topics from a different direction. Yeah. And one of the things I was trying to get across is that we're just different in Europe. We speak the same language. Mm. But we're actually very different. If if you changed our language, we would look very different. Um, we are in Europe. Uh, I would say a lot more collectivist. We have a you know universal healthcare, which is its top end. It's not as good as top end healthcare in the U.S. But at the same time, everybody, whoever you are, if you have a heart attack, you break your arm, you get immediately seen, and there's no bill. And some Americans I hear criticize that to me. But I honestly, I think if you had a referendum in the UK, do you want to get rid of the NHS? I think it'd be 90% probably you want to keep it. I don't know anyone's against it. So we just yeah. have this different, more kind of collectivist culture. Yeah, I think and, that's right. And I th- I sometimes I question that the internet breaks down the barriers of of international boundaries and cultures, but do we sometimes also have to like respect that they just are different cultures? For uh, sure. If you want to jump in. I mean... Yeah, I respect it, but so should American culture be respected, I suppose. If you're saying that's like a limiting principle of um, of our work, because oh. there are other cultures, therefore we shouldn't publish open source files on the internet, you know, I, uh, that's not going to limit me. But, no, but I, I, that's not what I'm getting at. I'm saying uh, there are net risks to this. Mm-hmm. There are, uh, I, th- I see the upside for the U.S., but I see more of a downside, say for the UK. Yeah. Is do you have do you feel a sense of responsibility in that? It was like is the topic Danny wants to ask about is like exporting US gun culture to the rest of the world to places that don't yeah. have it. because I don't know what you do on this. Do you do you do safety like the Silk Road had but its safety forms? I, I take a global view and yeah. and I think it's most radical possibilities are, are world changing, you know, they mm-hmm. enable new types of politics. Um, but uh, strictly speaking, um, I don't export to people in the world. I, I only export to United States citizens and U.S. persons. You can't download on DefCAD if you're not a U.S. citizen. 
Uh, because of my is. years of litigation, which we've discussed, I'm, I'm actually the most upstream in the ecosystem. I'm like very highly regulated. And so only U.S. persons, which is a, a set of people slightly larger than U.S. citizens, can access our files at DEFCAD. And that's, in fact, the only legal way to do it right now with the current fiction. It's the other actors downstream of me who might, let's well, say. Well, I was going to say, I, I, can almost, I can imagine if when I get home, back home to the U.K., if I want to find those files online, 100%. it wouldn't take me too long. 100%. I mean, yeah. to answer your question another way, you know, I don't, I'm not saying by um, disrespecting European norms mm. uh, that I'm trying to privilege American norms. I, I'm not actually saying that this is a uniquely American thing. Uh, I just want to point that out. But mm. also, you know, if Europe as a culture, as an, as an idea is dying, and it seems to me that it is, mm-hmm. um, well, that which is falling should be pushed. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not really arguing against you. I'm more considering what the reactions would be, what the implications are. I mean, what inventor control. of any technology holds off because he's like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, yeah, know, technology happens, change happens, and, and then a bunch of nerds get together and write the history books and just say, well, this is why it happened, right? But in yeah. fact, the events just come. And I'm not trying to say that, like, well, it's my prerogative to change history or whatever, but, like, there's a certain necessity and, like, um, a quality of the event and its repetition, which is now endless, and... There's nothing we can we can do to change it. Like I said, an, an inevitability anyway. So where are you at with Ghost, Ghost Gunner? And, and explain Ghost Gunner to people who are listening, because that was a real game changer, right? <clears throat> Maybe. Um, you know, Ghost Guns are a good example of this. Like, So our enemy invents the term Ghost Guns. They're like, what's a good way to talk about homemade guns that scares people and help us get a handle on this? Kevin DeLeon. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was workshopped in California by mm-hmm. a guy like Kevin DeLeon and... And then we were like, you know what, ghost guns, that's great. Wow, that's really good. So it's like we agree and amplify, right? We take the symbolic like content of that, and then we try to actually create the world where there is such a thing as a ghost gun. And kind of even thinking that the politicians themselves don't quite believe in it yet. Um, and so we created ghost gun kits and files and these things, and then a machine called the ghost gunner. You know, it's like we made it a verb or something. Um, so that's kind of like that symbolic dimension I was talking about earlier. But it's important that the machine actually do the thing and give you the ghost gun part. So for, let's say, six or seven years, we've done different generations of this machine, which are, in essence, like they, f- they like fit in the footprints of 3D printers. And unlike 3D printers, they don't uh, make the parts out of plastic. They drill, mill, fashion things from raw pieces of metal. Um, it turns out it's easy to make gun parts out of metal. Can you make the whole gun from... Depends on what you mean. In general, that's not what our machines are bought for. They're made for for finishing uh, parts that are kind of already uh, almost finished. Um, but most recently, like in January, we revealed a new type of receiver that can be made completely from a raw piece of metal. That's just the receiver. It's not the entire gun. Uh, we, what, what is the receiver part? In, in U.S. Uh, gun culture, gun politics, at least federally, um, just the receivers of guns are treated as guns by the law. So okay. all the other parts, unlike Europe, again, unlike Europe, all the other parts are just treated as so many components that are unregulated. The receiver is the serialized part. Okay. So the one part in commerce and the law that's kind of tracked and regulated, right? Like when the police are like, well, we can see where this gun went. We do the same thing down here with track and trace. It's like the receivers of, of handguns and, and long guns have um, a history in different people's tables. And, and do you agree with that guns should have that? Uh, well, no, not out of hand, no, not as a starting position. But okay. I agree that that's the situation. It's been that way since 1968. And do your, do your machines have to print a serial? No, no, that's just it. That's why you buy the machine. Oh. You buy the machine because, okay, now I make the whole thing. And the way the U.S. 
the features of the U.S. law are if you actually make the gun yourself, there's no requirement to put the serial on it. And that's what encourages people to invest in our equipment. Before the ghost guns, you could always make guns for yourself at home as long as you don't sell them. Okay. Individual hobbyists or whoever it is can make guns for themselves, can make 100 guns for themselves. As long as you don't sell them, it's legal. Mm. A lot of people still don't understand that in the United States. Whether you agree or disagree, you can make a gun for yourself. Default assumptions of our gun culture are that, well, where do I get the gun? Well, I go and buy it like anything else, right? Uh -huh. Like some Chinese crap or something. But um, actually now that it's easier and has been just as a consequence of the digital revolution, now anyone can make a gun at home. Uh, actually, it was always legal to do that. And only just now, like I said previously, in the last few years have states and cities attempted to start doing something uh, to get a handle on that. Like I said, the law was never there. That ghost gun um, word and feature has been so successful that even now they're calling things that they just find ghost guns because it kind of brings up this entire, like the terror of, you know, when they created, created the idea of assault weapons, like what is this, 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 this thing? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, it's been a very successful word or usage. I feel like a while back I saw a trailer for it that was almost like mm -hmm. an, an Apple trailer. <laughs> Yeah, I Not put, a, I put an like, Apple computer in that trailer and yeah, yeah. The, the little Apple lit up and everything. But were they like kind of bright neon colors? and? Uh -huh, yeah. yeah, I remember that. Yeah, fun. <laughs> <laughs> People are like strangest Apple commercial ever. <laughs> but that's, that's another icon. aspect of our dimension, right? Because yeah. of course it's, it's, it's obscene to imagine like one of these large companies doing something like what they do with their type of marketing with firearms. We recognize it's incompatible and not a set of, um, not a part of Silicon Valley culture or whatever, the noblesse oblige, you know, American, Harvard, Soviet complex. Uh, so it's funny <laughs> to do it, uh, to have a little dancing girl jump around on a ghost gunner and stuff, you know, and just to pretend that what I'd love to do next, right, is like a, a home assistant, like Alexa or something, <laughs> you know, be like, guru, like, help me make an AR-15. It's like, all right, you got it, buddy. You know, and we just know that Silicon Valley will never deliver that to us. And so it's funny and it, it contains its own cultural critique. Do you know how much uh, the software is being used? The files are being used? Do you have like a... Yeah, we have estimates. I mean, we download counters at the site, usage counters and things like that on, on our site. And then you you simply get a sense of, I mean, there's lots of businesses that have been built up that have a presence on Twitter and online that will sell you um, machined components to go into your 3D printed build kit. Uh, so a, a ton of these, I mean, I should name something, FGC9 kits, um, are we cool yet? Has a bunch of stuff. The Arc is a new gun with charging handles and Riptide rails, Aves rails. A lot of these kids have figured out how to commercialize too. These are becoming more than just hobby enterprises. They're becoming quasi-professional. So new businesses are being created off the back of this. Yeah, and some I should say money making and some not. <laughs> right, but the, yeah. but you figure it out. Like I think yeah. Riptide's making money, yeah, for right. example. Well, they're selling actual rails. And right? there's like 3dprintfreedom.com. There's weird places, and and I don't know. They're figuring it out. They'll sell you 3D printers. They'll sell you you know kits and and especially mach machine components. And this is maybe too big a point to try to make quickly, but in a sense, this technology restriction that these um, arch liberals are trying to enforce has an accidental mercantilist quality to not just preserve the skills of gun making, but to develop cottage industry against the exact purposes of the regulation. You begin to think like, oh, wow, where the law is gray and where technology is restricted, there's the saving power. There is a real symmetry with Bitcoin there. Yeah, um, yeah. In that one, the cat's out of the bag. There has been these regulatory challenges that uh, regulation hasn't been able to keep up. There's hypocrisy within the regulations. Mm -hmm. um, but also in, there's these businesses 
well, some businesses, some hobby projects that have propped up, which are there to help people route around the regulations or mm -hmm. be prepared for a situation where the regulatory uh, lens comes down quite hard on it. I, th I think so. The type of person I think attracted to both types of Bitcoin or crypto yeah. and guns is not is a, a very different type of person. I think that that law and government have to deal with now too. They're engineers. They're absolute nerds in the best way. They're highly focused, and and it's it's coupled with a passion and an ideology, for lack of a better word to say. So it's a really it's an unbreakable structure. I'm I'm willing to take a, a cynical long term view of it as well. But this <laughs> is maybe its own success, and it's independently of me. You know how in early Bitcoin, I don't know how long you've been involved. Probably well, 2012 13 using the Silk Road, but yeah. I didn't get into Bitcoin, yeah. and then into 16, 17, yeah. back in. Okay. Well, from especially 12 to 14, the only people involved in Bitcoin were like freaks and criminals, yeah, and, yeah. you know, like totally yes. just awful people or you know, absolute autists. And to some degree, the autists have stuck around in large numbers, but we've seen how like uh, Carpalis and a lot of the, you know, the, yeah. the charlatans get pushed out and there are these new kind of quasi-professional types that come in and We've courted institutional prestige. Now we have real finance people with real degrees. And okay, there's like this this stage of participation. And I'll say that something like that will happen in our space. It's been maybe slower because it just started with a freak and a criminal. Uh, and eventually, as these as these autists professionalize, and the best case scenario I have for myself is they'll mythologize me into something like, well, he was he was a good guy. He was an agorist, and he he wanted us all to make money or something. You know, that's the best case scenario. Probably. Most realistic scenario is I'm, I'll be forgotten like the early criminals of, of Bitcoin and, and we'll always pretend this was a kind of anodyne middle class thing that we were doing. Perhaps not because uh, uh, life is long. You have to look at the people who have been forgotten about or uh, in Bitcoin or whose reputation has changed. It's usually because they moved on to Bitcoin from Bitcoin to another cryptocurrency, which has its implica fair. implications. Uh, I, I don't see that happening. I more wonder though. Do do you, do you need more Cody Wilsons to take the pressure off you? If there was no, like, you no, don't. I don't think so. I, I think where things have gotten, it's already at this atomic phase of the network. Um, it's networks of networks now. It's lots of people working independently, commercially, successfully. Uh, I don't think you need a figure like me to to do anything really. I think at this point. It's more man on a wire. It's like, why is he still going? Does he need to keep going? <laughs> like, he's a bit of a buffer, though. I think yeah. uh, okay. that that you still exist and you're like a target does keep people away from. Yeah, it's a should fair I point. name them Gatalog from other people that's that are pu pushing things out there. What, what was it, Jeremy said earlier? Jeremy, the thing about the car. <laughs> come on the mic and say it. Remember the thing uh, about the car, the racing girl. Yeah, sorry. Um, how in drafting, uh, like in racing, yeah, that there's okay. the, the leader who breaks the wind and that makes it easier for everybody behind them. Okay. So it takes those people to go ahead and face the, the harder things to face, but everybody else is able to make it easier because of that. We were saying it earlier because uh, there's a guy called Saifuddin Amus who wrote a book called The Bitcoin Standard. Yeah. Me and him don't really agree on a lot. Uh-oh. Um, and he uh, he is highly concerned about uh, environmental alarmists, I think he has a fair point. Yeah, but I think he takes it to the very extreme of completely dismissing the reality of some of the science. But he essentially is that windbreaker for all the other people behind him 
who want to hold those ideas. I take the opposite position and say, hmm, I think he's right about this, but I think he's wrong about that, which yeah. pisses off all the more libertarian or, or right uh, conservative Bitcoiners. Yeah. But I great break the wind for the people who are okay. perhaps a little bit more left and center. I can say two concrete things about this. I, I have in the past thought of myself as an umbrella or a lightning rod while the, while the groups were really nascent. Like from 2013 to 2015, very little was happening and it felt fragile to me. And I was like, well, good that I'm still there in the Fifth Circuit trying to score a First Amendment thing. From 2018, when I got in trouble, both legally and you know personally, uh, it looked like my death or whatever actually inspired a lot more participation. And I was like, well, I don't even need to, probably don't even need to come back. But it just so happened that like, um, I maintain standing in our lawsuits and that these when these new laws come out, I'm one of the few people with the economic power, the market power and the legal standing to actually move the needle anywhere in the courts. And it's not that like I think, you know, I'm still cynical about the courts. I don't think I'll get great decisions, but by just holding the fight in the black letter, in the process, you know, which is a long process, especially the, the federal appellate process, just holding it there, it keeps things in this glacial pace, which prevents even the, the worst of the progressives from going off narrative uh, and getting improvisational. So that gives the other people time. And during that, there's all these other players that came about in 2018, 2019, 2020 that are creating and just putting it out there. So what's the end goal with this, Cody? Like, it feels like when we talked about uh, that ongoing chat about the Constitution. Yeah. That there's the defenders and there's the attackers. Yeah. Like, it feels like this, therefore, will always be, always be an issue because there is always a guns rights issue in the U.S. There are those who defend guns rights. Yeah. And then there are those who uh, uh, want to restrict gun rights. So I, I mm -hmm. interviewed... Um, couple of years back, Texas Gun Sense, because mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. wanted to understand their perspective. It feels like as long as you want to do this, you're always going to be doing this, always in a fight. Like, it's a scary you, thought. Yeah, I was going to say, do you have a multi-decade fight in you? I don't know. I don't, every year I think it's the last year. <laughs> You've definitely got that on camera. A few times. Uh, every always, year. You never no. finish this film. <laughs> I know. Uh, I'm going to keep on getting it so <laughs> until and, I get financed. And that's just it. Like one, every year it's like, well, how can I... You know, it's not like we have investors or anything. It's like, how can we continue to be commercial? Okay, and then every year it's like, well, what are the new lawsuits will be? In? So I, I don't actually expect that I could even go another 10 years. I don't really think that. Although I guess Lindy effects, things like that would suggest that the longer you've been around, the longer you'll stay around. Doesn't feel that way in the driver's seat to me, but um, if, there's, if there's some end, it's, okay, I can take the NRA Republican's point of view, although he doesn't know it's his point of view which is uh, the NRA Republican is kicking around in the 90s and 2000s thinking, well, if the assault weapons ban will just expire, maybe we can acclimate people to the AR-15 and like, we'll slowly bring everybody on board. I think, I think bringing everybody on board is not the point. It's having everyone recognize, especially the left and the gun controllers, that the far side of this issue or the other end of the horseshoe is not everyone can have an AR-15, but uh, maximum gun proliferation all over the world through downloadable, you know, completely liquid means. Uh-oh that changes their own positions. And so where the agenda of these people from the 80s and 90s was, we're gonna ban the Glock, we're gonna ban the AR-15, uh, they recognize this is hopeless and they can only kind of fiddle with certain features of guns, let's say, or maybe spend all their time on this 3D element. And they let, you know, they left, they left the barn door open for a traditional ownership means. By traditional, I mean commercial. And so it's completely changed their coordinates. While this whole conversation is going, in the last two years, people have bought more guns in the United States than ever. So it's not like 
this conversation about 3D and information and things being put on the internet, the actual purchasing of serialized guns in the United States is beyond. And you know, we're winning too, because during COVID they're like, well, racists are downloading guns. <laughs> you're like, I think we're winning. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, it's it's from a place. We, we have that. Has to say. We have racists the, are dead. The, they far have right, the far right are using Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. So we're in that place, which yeah. means. Dark money. Kind of winning. winning. Yeah. Um, couple of things left I want to talk to you about. Uh, I'm really interested in your ideas on governance. Uh, you mentioned democracy earlier. Um, uh, I've, I'm in this kind of lost place of agreeing entirely with the libertarians, um, but also like a reluctant uh, support of democracy, seeing its failings at the moment, but don't know where we where we go with this. And I'm, I'm not sure what fight is worth happening. I certainly think we should uh, push towards more liberty uh, as, um, as government always continues to grow and get bigger. Um, but I'm not like an ANCAP. I'm, I'm not a full libertarian. Uh, yeah. Um, and I'm kind of lost in this place in that the European in me is like democracy, Churchill. And then when I come to America, I'm like, yeah. ah, smaller government, liberty. Yeah, I feel that. Um, yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't start a fight with you about this. I think your own feelings are, are mine. You know, we, we grew up in the commanding heights of a certain type of democratic form. You know, we're comfortable with the world order the way we understood it for the last 20, 30 years. When I see the war in Russia, for example, I don't really see it as a, a threat to democracy like the, the Western propaganda suggests. I see it as a, a signal of the end of the global potential of this of this system to spread and control the markets of the world and the governments of the world. I think uh, to chasten these democracies is a good thing. And then I think to think clearly is, is even better. And to recognize that what we call these democracies um, is not apt. They're really large-scale oligarchies enforcing something like debt communism. Yep. That's why you're in Bitcoin, right? Like we mm -hmm. all recognize that, you know, this is uh, something almost worse than, a, than the Soviet situation because it, it maintains this um, Republican pronouns, <laughs> but little else of substance. So I'm not sure I'd go as far as saying worse than Russia. Really? I always think, uh, where would I want to live? Yeah. And therefore, which is better, which is worse? And I do not want to live in Russia. And that's why sometimes I laugh at uh, libertarians yeah. in, who live in Sweden complaining at me when they live in one of the safest liberal democracies yeah. in the world. And, yeah. and uh, so far I'm struggling to see uh, any libertarian society outside of Somalia, which is like, it's used as sure, an example sure. and people love it, but it is a real example of, and everywhere I've seen the breakdown in the rule of law leads to uh, more harm to vulnerable groups whether that's uh, those who are physically challenged, whether it's those who are from a uh, minority group, yeah, minority yeah. race, women, it's just, it always happens. And then when people get desperate, they get more violent. Yeah. And I think there is a lot of good that's come out of uh, democracy and the progress of civilization. I, I, I'm one of these people who measures civilization on how well it looks after its most vulnerable groups. And I think to yeah. want to burn that all down because some government's got a bit shit, I think yeah. stupid. So when I look at Russia, yeah, I don't want to live there. I love living in. I love the UK and I love the US. Yeah, and I've been to lots of places in South America, and I don't want to live there. So I think the most uh, Western liberal democracies for yeah. me are the best places to live. Uh, this is historically true. Although you know, if you look at 1950, uh, if safety and security are your standards, 
certainly seems that civilization hasn't delivered a whole lot more safety and security in this country or others since that time. And I wonder why that would be. Is it, I mean, I don't know how you measure that and whether that's actually Well, true. draw a map and show me where it's safe for a white man to walk around with an iPad in his hand at night in 1950. And then redraw that map for me in 2020. And tell me there isn't a difference. I mean, hmm. I mean, you wouldn't have had an iPad in 1950, so let's play a game. Yeah, but it's like it's a, it's a different world. Like I, I, I'm not uh, sure that's, that's a, a fake. That's a cop out, brother. I'm not sure it is. Yeah. I'm not sure it is because if safety and security are your standards, it certainly seems to me that there are fewer and fewer places where you can actually find that safety and security. There's very few places that I would be nervous walking around late at night in the UK. Very few places. Some parts of London. There's yeah. not a single place in the town I live in Bedford I would not walk around in. Yeah. I'm perfectly comfortable. I don't you, know about you, Danny, how you feel about the UK. There's not many. No, and, and the places that you wouldn't walk around, you, you kind of know them. But, I mean, that's not an excuse. But, um, but, but I see the question you're answer, asking. It's like, why has it got less safe? If your mark of the progress of civilization is, in fact, those standards, then... Did you have progress in civilization? Real question. Well, it depends. It depends what your measure is. If if it's uh, where you, you told can, me what your measure well, is. No, no, no. My measure is uh, one of my one of my measures on progress of civilization. Yeah. How it looks after vulnerable groups. I care about that, and it's yeah. and it's very anti-libertarian because I care about the fact that we I'm pro-regulation on certain regulations. Yeah. Um, like we have rules that protect vulnerable groups in the UK in certain situations. Now, I don't. I think a lot of this stuff's gone too far now. Yeah. But I think that is progress. Um, but at some point, you'll recognize your own internal alienation and tell me where I'm wrong. No, I'm, I'm not saying or you're wrong. You but I'm one day, you you might say, "Well, hold up, I feel like a vulnerable group at this point. And I, where is the protection for me?" I think just, I think I'm fairly protected. I, I feel very. <laughs> I, I've been. I've traveled all around the world. I feel very safe and lucky to yeah. live in the UK. Whilst at the, the, the same time, I do despise a lot of our government. But I think it's easy to criticize government because they have yeah, a yeah. shit job to do with, with the worst pool of talent to do it with. This is a, a valid position, but they often say you don't feel your chains until you try to move them. So, you know, I would encourage more contact with the state, which you're happy with. Well, I felt them during COVID when I couldn't leave yeah. the country. Danny especially felt it in Australia. Mm-hmm. Like I'm aware of the risk. And, but the, the, I, should, the, I should say too that I'm, I, I don't believe, neither of us are, we should feel lucky because we're not at risk of a libertarian revolution breaking out. And, uh, well, well, but do you know what? <laughs> I, I've, I brought it on this podcast a bunch of times. I yeah. said one of my things that I would like to see from the libertarians, yeah. because I fundamentally agree on paper with what they say, almost entirely. Yeah. Where I disagree is where they the ones who refuse to engage in politics because yeah. we have this politics is a pull from the left to the right. We swing one way, we swing another. That's just the way it is. We go we, the pendulum always goes too far, and you get that counter reaction. If the libertarians are in government, and especially if there's representative representative democracy, you could have that pull from big to small. But without that, yeah. you go left to right with government getting bigger, bigger, and bigger. Yeah. If the libertarians could pull it down and make government smaller, I think that would be one of the things that's really useful. Those people who defend those basic rights. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I think we both probably realize that's not possible. And and I don't believe that representative democracy has existed in this country, much less others, for for a long time. And sadly, I'm not trying to be like a. You know, I don't think that's a controversial statement. No, it's not. Um, so you know, it's like I don't want to fight. Um, in Plato's cave or something with like these shadows. I, I don't think that's the world we live in. I, like I said, I think it uses Republican pronouns, but it, it sure is a lot of censorship and restriction and all this other stuff necessary to enforce this so-called democracy. Yeah. Right? 
Um, and I get the suspicion when I hear State Department flax and all these other people talk about how we got to preserve democracy over in Europe. I feel like you can understand it better if you just replace the word democracy with world dominion, world domination. Oh, okay, it all makes sense to me now. Mm. This is um, this is an imperial establishment with satellite and client-state relationships, and it's enforced by a world system derived after the Second World War by better, more competent politicians. They're not more competent now. The system itself, to me, seems not worth burning down, but like um, it can't it can't keep going and giving itself this this these privileges. How do we make it better? That's where I don't know what to How do. How do we make it better? Yeah, well, like you know the answer. You're in Bitcoin. Well, yeah, okay. So we, yeah. we check and balance on the money. Oh, that's a big one, don't yeah. you think? I, I wouldn't even pretend that 3D printed guns are on the level with Bitcoin. Bitcoin's the most important, you know, innovation in, in hundreds of years. It's probably the Go I ahead. think alongside it here, like the First and the Second Amendment work together. I think yeah. Bitcoin and printed guns here in the US, if you did have that organized militia, yeah. you could see the asymmetry. I just don't see it maybe in our country. There, there's a relatedness with the technologies of the programs. Or something. There's a relatedness and it's maybe American libertarianism, like you were saying. Yeah. That's why your questions are like good. But I think Bitcoin is far and above more important and more important yeah. for the world. Um, and what we're doing with the gun thing is, is still like... Um, it's still in a dimension of, of critique and, and challenge, and it's, a, it's at a symbolic level before it's at a, a truly practical um, political level. All right, I got one more question, and then I'm going to get you to talk about the <laughs> film a bit more. All right. Get some, uh, drive us some support for what you're doing, Jessica. So uh, we had a discussion about uh, the limitations of free speech. We mm -hmm. were talking about it, and one of the ways that uh, one of your defenses, and correct me if I explain this in the wrong way, but is that, uh, essentially you're releasing code and code is speech and therefore you defend this on the free speech level. Mm -hmm. Something very similar that's been used uh, for privacy. For, what, remind me. Uh, Phil Zimmerman, yeah, that's BGP. It. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. um, it's been used with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is code, code is speech. Um, I did an interview with this guy called Austin. Do you know Austin Hill? He's mm. a, Sounds like I should. He's an early block stream guy. We did yeah. a, a topic called the vulnerable world hypothesis. It's this expansion of technologies AI, CRISPR, what are the other ones? <laughs> I've lost you at that moment. But like these uh, these technologies that have been, you know. Uh, technologies of this century. You're yeah, saying. like, like yeah. newer technologies mm -hmm. and point at this point, uh, the singularity and yada, yada. And what does that mean for the world and if code is speech? And I fully understand the defense, but we all got a bit kind of jumpy when we got to CRISPR. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because... CRISPR, you have the ability to essentially print a virus that could wipe out significant parts of humanity. And it didn't seem like we needed CRISPR. We just did a pretty we, good job. Well, we didn't do it. Well, Cris as, CRISPR as, was probably involved. <laughs> <laughs> but like as a group. What I'm saying is that there is a, a significant risk to somebody having that technology at a psychopathic level to release something entirely yeah. dangerous for the whole world. Yeah. Should that be defended on the rights of free speech? I think that's probably true. Probably bioterror is the new, you know, that'll be the, the thing this century. You know, COVID was just the table setting for, for an age of, of bioweapons and bioterror. That's likely even, you know. And if it's not private actors, it'll be state actors and, and proxy conflicts with state actors. And if they can get the hat trick of like blaming private actors for this stuff and restricting that kind of code to themselves, they'll do it. Um, so almost from a defensive point of view, I would say, well, don't give them the rhetorical, legal, constructive room 
to make those kinds of arguments simply so they can't apply that type of thinking, that worst case scenario, slippery slope, bioterror argument to the normal stuff, like the other types of weapons. And I'll give you a, an example from the previous century, the progressive case. That magazine was publishing important plans for how to make a hydrogen bomb. Um, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. They tried to block it for what sounds like reasonable reasons, right? We don't want anyone to know how to make. Can it really be that the First Amendment protects the plans for making hydrogen bomb? In this case, at least, the answer was yes. And um, I don't see a principled reason, uh, at least from the outset, to lay off. What if there's a a CRISPR Cody Wilson? <laughs> Almost surely there will be, or yeah. you know, they'll pretend that there is one. Um, I, I wonder then if there's a difference between the practicality of like, okay, there's the code level of this stuff, which surely is, is liquid and easy to get. And it's probably a little harder to have a bio lab than it is to have a bench grinder and a, a vice. And I'm not sure it's too hard. Off a pipe. I'm not sure it's, <laughs> I think it's harder. Yeah. Uh, probably easier than constructing a hydrogen bomb and being able Maybe. to deploy it. Maybe. Uh, but like... Uh, These are questions I don't often think about. Although, um, you know, I knew I knew one of the researchers at Harvard that was involved with some of the early CRISPR and xenotransplantation stuff. And um, her estimates to me at the time, were, uh, if I was like, well, how, you know, if I wanted to get into this for my own rights, like what if Cody Wilson wanted to be the CRISPR code? <laughs> uh, she was like, well, okay, about 300,000 to set up the kind of lab that we have. That's not that's not so bad. It's mm. not unaffordable, mm -hmm. especially if you bought Bitcoin six years ago, <laughs> <coughs> or were given lots of Bitcoin. Or given six lots years of Bitcoin. Ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, because it's it's one. Um, my brother's a researcher on this. Um, yeah, and we spent a lot of time talking about these things, and we did the vulnerable world hypothesis, and then we started to consider ways you deal with some of these vulnerable issues, and we often struggled to find a way that wasn't centralized. Yeah. Um, but the centralization comes with the risk that yeah. the, the, you're given the power to the governments. That's probably coming, you know, yeah. like, is the world going to be more centralized ahead? Feels like it. We're all going to be on metaverse. Nobody's going to care. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Teal has argued. <laughs> That's how it's going to work out. Maybe just because it's fashionable, there's more argument yeah. lately in the last couple of years about the pendulum swinging back and the internet re-decentralizing and the multipolar world order you know, the Chinese Russian bloc kind of flowering. And you know, I, don't, I don't know if I really believe any of that, but I mean, the current conflicts do seem to suggest, uh, okay, other, other blocks have to form. And mm -hmm. I think that's hopeful actually for a return. Yeah. Maybe there's an internet where there's CRISPR and, and an internet without, but yeah, in a, in a global world, all you can say is, okay, more centralization, a, a more fractured internet. It seems like that hurts everybody and everything to me, but uh, maybe that's realistic though. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you for this. I know, you, as you said, you don't do a lot of interviews. That's all good. Uh, it's been on my radar for a few years. My pleasure. Uh, I always like things when I learn. And, and actually from this, I want to go and read some of this early history stuff you started off with. It's fascinating. I'd love to give you and your listeners recommendations. Yeah, uh, please do. Yeah. Bernard, Bernard Balin, uh, Edmund Morgan, uh, esteemed scholars of the, the early revolution and the, the early Americans. Um, Pauline Meyer for ratification of the Constitution. Uh, those, are, those are good places to start. But of course, the primary sources are the best too. The writings of uh, James Madison, you know, his papers, George Mason, Patrick Henry, of course, if you're into guns. And, uh, and then, of course, there's a lot of literature about the Second Amendment, but uh, I'll let you find that on your own. Well, we'll, we'll put a bunch in the show notes. Um, sure. And also, Jessica, you've been making a film. 
Make please uh, appeal as you want to, <laughs> to the listeners of the show might want to help and support you. Sure. So making a film for seven years, it's been, a, it's about Cody. It's about, um, defense distributed. It goes into all the 3d gun movement and figures that have popped up since kind of 2018, 2019. It's about, I guess the art and the symbolic nature of it and the ethos behind it, behind it. And it's a real, hopefully, if it gets made, <laughs> knock on wood, it's going to get made, um, a chronicle and a lot of things that people haven't seen. I mean, I've been uh, I've been really on top of Cody these last years, letting me in, knocking and knocking, and he's, he's given me his time. Um, so there's lots of questions about certain times in history that's happened that I mm. think Cody has only told me about and... Of course, I was there in 2018, 2019. And so there's new information as well. Um, so I hope this is like a, a good, I mean, one thing about this is I went to streaming right before COVID hit and the response back is because this was on the wrong side of history. So movies are getting curated now for what they're attempting to even uh, well, capture. We spoke about this. I, I, my comment to that was, how can you be on the wrong side of history before history has been made? Or what, awesome. why is history wrong? Yeah, awesome. How can history be wrong? That yeah. is like the the wrong like paradigm to even consider. You're um, on the wrong side of the history they want to curate. Exactly. So if you enjoy being on the wrong side of history, I am inviting everyone to come help me fund this film. Nice. It's been seven years of me self-funding this. Um, and we are ready to go into post-production. I have a killer editor. Come to my website. I have a four-minute tease up for you, and you can donate. And if you're interested in becoming more of a considerable player in uh, executive producer, contact me. So you can donate or you can invest as a Absolutely. producer. Can you donate in Bitcoin? Yes, is it ready? I'll take Ethereum. If you want, give me. <laughs> right, if, you, if you want to give me, if you give me cash, I'll take cash. We're done. Okay. If you wanna, turn off the camera. She's done it. She's out of here. Uh, <laughs> if you want to knock on my door and give me cash, like here's my address. For <laughs> we we the show will make a Bitcoin donation towards it. Oh, uh, we will put that out in the show notes. We'll put it out in the tweet, uh, and we will do everything we can to help try and uh, promote and get this film made. Thank you. Uh, appreciate your time. Cody, appreciate your time. I really enjoyed this. My pleasure. Good luck with everything. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.